Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 9. Our text today, verses 28 through 36. The title of the message is The Glory of the Sun. This is a rich text, and we are taking our time walking through it, enjoying what the Lord is graciously teaching us. Luke presents Jesus, as you know, as the God-man. In his humanity, we see Jesus becoming tired and hungry and just the same things that we have happened in our lives. But in his deity, he's presented as one who performed great miracles, such as raising the dead and great in number and great in quantity, such as the time he fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. But our passage this morning focuses on the divine part of Jesus, which is he's altogether God and altogether man. Shortly after Peter's great confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus called Peter and the other disciples who made up the inner circle away from the rest of the apostles up upon a mountainside for the purpose of revealing, however briefly, his heavenly glory. And so let's read about that episode in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he came along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. May the Lord add His blessing in the reading and hearing of His Word. Well, the truth is we don't really know what Jesus looked like in His physical body, though that has not stopped millions of artists from doing their best to portray Jesus in all sorts of artistic mediums. When I was a small boy, the little church that uh, we went to, had a picture of what was supposed to be the Lord Jesus in the foyer. And I remember it seemed to be lifelike. It was as large as a man. And it portrayed Jesus as a shepherd. And in the picture there were little lambs frolicking at His feet and even had one draped around His neck. And so when I picture Jesus, that's the picture I have in my mind because it's the first one I received when I first started going to church. Some believe that the Old Testament gives hints that Jesus was not remarkable in His appearance. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Well, perhaps that was speaking of Jesus as He was beaten and on the cross. He certainly would have been disfigured by that. 
But, but many in the early church, especially the church fathers such as Augustine, insisted that Jesus must have been the ideal human being in appearance and action. That is, he was physically perfect just as he was uh, spiritually perfect. Well, the Bible doesn't say. The truth is that the New Testament is virtually silent about the physical appearance of Jesus. But the Bible has plenty to say about the glory of God. That's why the title of today's message is The Glory of the Son. And you will notice that the word Son is spelled with an O and not a U. We're speaking of the glory of Jesus, the glory of the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Liberator of Israel. We talk a lot about God's glory here at First Baptist, don't we? And what we mean when we talk about the glory of God most often is His honor and fame that He deserves. That's why we adopted a few months ago an overarching goal moving forward for First Baptist Keller is soli Deo Gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. In everything that we do, we want God to receive the recognition, the fame, and the honor. But there is another sense that we can speak of the glory of God, and that the Bible speaks of the glory of God, and that is in His physically manifest form. That is, on occasion, God has been willing to take on some physical appearance and interact with man. We have a number of examples of that in the Old Testament. In fact, the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, after God created the heaven and the earth, He created His highest creation, man, and He gave to man a helpmate, Eve. And the Scripture says that He would come in the cool of the morning and He would fellowship with Adam and Eve in some physical manifestation. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted sitting on a throne in His temple and His robes filled the temple. And remember the angels buzzed around saying, Holy is the Lord. And theologians and Old Testament interpreters from that came up with the term to describe the physical presence of God on earth and the word is Shekinah. And it is used interchangeably often in churches and among Christians for God's glory. It means His presence. Now there are some things to know about when God allows us to see a little glimpse of Himself. First of all it is a veiled glory. My understanding of the Scripture that if we were to cast our eyes upon the full measure of the glory of God, we would die. And so God has to somehow veil His glory. He did that for Moses, remember, when He called him up on the mountain. And Moses says, I want to see you with my own eyes. And God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and caused His glory to pass by. And the Scripture says, Moses saw, as it were, the hinder parts of God. He just got a little glimpse of God's glory. And Moses glowed like the moon for weeks. He had to wear a veil when he came down to interact with the people because of the interaction he had with God's glory. It's not only veiled, it is powerful. We know that the Apostle Paul, when he was in the presence of the risen Christ, was blinded by the Shekinah glory of Jesus. When Jesus even spoke his name, he could knock people down like a stack of dominoes. But the glory of God, though veiled and powerful, will be fully seen one day in heaven. In fact, sometimes we call heaven glory. I find myself sometimes when I'm particularly moved by some point of Scripture or some beautiful hymn just saying glory. That is a word that, that we mean for God's presence is here. Well, my first point as it relates to God's physical presence and His glory is illumination. 
The root of illumination means light. Anytime in the Bible we have a physical manifestation of God's presence, it is accompanied by light. Now think about it. When Moses was confronted by God in the wilderness, he spoke to him through a burning bush. And that bush, no doubt, gave off light. As I said, when Moses went up on the mountain, there was a great light. In fact, God's presence in the camp of those Hebrew children that were fleeing Egypt, headed toward the Promised Land, was manifest through a pillar of fire by night. Now, there are many representative examples of biblical passages that deal with God as, as light. Genesis 1-3 says, let there be light. This is God in His creative power bringing forth light out of nothing. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They lived in a land of shadows, but now light is shining on them. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to guide me in the light of my path. A couple of Sunday nights ago, our choir and orchestra put on an outstanding performance of uh, hymns and spiritual songs. And the theme of that was light, taken from 1 John 1, 5. Now the message that we have heard from the Son and announced is this, God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. If then we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet at the same time live in the darkness, we are lying both in our words and in our actions. You see, the significance of light representing the presence of God is that light represents good as opposed to evil and truth as opposed to lies. In fact, one of the ways to describe, the, the, the Bible describes our salvation is that there are two kingdoms in the universe. The first kingdom is the kingdom of darkness and it's ruled over by Satan who we sometimes say is the prince of darkness. And, and that kingdom of darkness is juxtaposed against the kingdom of Christ, God's dear Son. And so the Bible says when we are saved, one of the things that happens is that our eternal permanent address is transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so here we have Jesus taking His inner circle of apostles up upon a mountain, away from the world, away from everything else, and He is transfigured. If you grew up in church, you recognize this as the Mount of Transfiguration. Something is transfigured if it changes dramatically in physical appearance. And so Jesus very graciously allowed these inner circle of disciples who would lead the fledgling church after the day of Pentecost to catch just a little glimpse of His glory in a similar way that Moses had done in the Old Testament. Jesus is unveiling His glory to affirm the great confession that Peter made. Remember, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus did not rebuke him and say, no, I'm not. He affirmed it. He said, congratulations to be congratulated. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But Jesus knew that Peter and the others had a short memory, and they would need something branded upon their consciousness and their memory to draw them back to remember that He indeed was who He claimed to be. And this was the moment up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So there's illumination. The second thing we see here is a consultation. 
Consultation is just a meeting, and the meeting took place between Jesus and two men who had been dead for centuries, Elijah and Moses. Look at the verse, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There's something I always remind us when we read a passage of the Bible, particularly a historical narrative about famous characters, is that Jesus is the hero of the Bible, right? Doesn't matter what passage you read, Old or New Testament, Jesus is the hero. And so here we have Jesus alongside what many Jewish people would say were the two greatest men that ever lived. And yet Jesus is the hero. He doesn't take a back seat to them at all. Now, likely, the appearance of Elijah and Moses was symbolic and very significant at this peak point in Jesus' ministry. I say it's the peak point because you remember that Jesus' public ministry began with his baptism. He went out to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River. And a voice, an audible voice from heaven declared, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus went out to fast and be tempted of Satan. And he came back, he chose his apostles, and he went on his earthly ministry for about three years. Now he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He's really at the, the, the high point, the apex of his popularity. Thousands of people following wherever he goes. But from this point on, he knows it's the beginning of the end. And he's about to turn and go to Jerusalem to do what he came to do ultimately, which was die an atoning sacrifice for sins. And Moses represents the law. You know that it was Moses through whom God gave the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. And therefore Moses is greatly revered in Jewish culture. And Elijah stood as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And the Bible declares that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. Everything that God gave in the law, Jesus obeyed perfectly. Everything that was predicted about the coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Now, it's interesting the conversation they had. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall to hear a conversation with Jesus, Elijah, and Moses? And yet we're told what they were talking about. We're not told the specific dialogue, but we're told the subject. The subject is that Jesus is about to head towards Jerusalem and suffer and die. Now, now that's interesting because these two men, Moses and Elijah, were known for how they departed this world. Remember, no, Moses had led the wandering Hebrews in the wilderness for 40 years, had led them well, but he was not perfect. Remember, he struck the rock, displeased the Lord, and so Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. He saw it from a distance, but he was not allowed to go over, and the Lord took him and, and buried him somewhere we don't even know. And then Elijah never died. We say he was translated. That is, the Lord just took him on to heaven without experiencing physical death. And do you remember how that happened? Elijah came to the end of his ministry and life. He had a protege named Elisha. And Elijah said, I, I, I'm going out here. And Elisha perceived he was going to die or going to leave him. And he wasn't ready. He said, I'm going with you. He said, no, you stay here. But Elisha wouldn't take no for an answer. And he kept following Elijah from village to village. And finally, they got out there where they were going. And uh, he was going to pass that mantle, his coat representing his prophetic office to Elisha. 
And Elisha says, I, I won't take it unless God gives me a double portion of Elijah's blessing. And uh, the Lord did that, didn't he? And the Lord sent a chariot of fire that swooped down and scooped up Elijah and took him to heaven. These men knew how to make an exit. And they're talking with Jesus about his exit strategy from this planet and, and how he's going. And, and right in the middle of all that, Peter wakes up from sleep. And that's our third point, disorientation. If you ever awaken early in the morning when you're not through with your nap, you're disoriented. If you ever woken up and you really don't know where you are, you're so tired, and it really takes you a few moments to get your bearings. I suspect that was the experience that Peter and the others had. Look at, look at verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. They were just worn out. But when they were fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. Now, as I read that several times this week, one thought kept coming into my mind. These apostles sure are a sleepy bunch. Because this is not the only place in Scripture where we find them sleeping when they ought to be awake. Remember the night of Jesus' arrest, he took them out to Gethsemane. And he was going to pray, and he asked them to pray with them, but they couldn't stay awake. They kept falling asleep. Well, that just tells you that they're like us. They, they had weaknesses. They were not perfect. But when he woke up, took him a moment, he began to realize what was happening. Now, how he knew this was Elijah and Moses, we're not told. It, it reminds me, though, of how we dream. You ever had a dream that's so vivid, and there's people in your dream you hadn't thought about in 20 years, maybe someone you went to elementary school with. And though in their dream, they're grown up, they look totally different than the last time you saw them, but you know it's them. You don't even question that. And perhaps uh, that, that's the situation here. We're not told. Maybe Jesus said, Peter, I'd like to introduce Elijah and, and Moses to you, but we don't, we don't find that in the text. But Peter knew, the others knew that this was Elijah and Moses. And this was a watershed moment in their life. This was something they would never forget. We know that because of both of, of two of the three men that are mentioned here, John and Peter, wrote books of the New Testament that bear their name. And in both of those cases, they make mention of this episode, even if in passing. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, we read this verse. And the Word became flesh, that's the Lord Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, in effect, look, I'm not just saying this in a second-hand way. This is not something I heard from someone else. I saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ with my own eyes. He's an eyewitness. So was Peter. And so in 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Majesty is a synonym for glory. Peter says the same thing. Look, I didn't hear this. Didn't make this up. Didn't hear this secondhand. I was there. I saw the glory of Jesus Christ with my own eyes. But Peter didn't often say what he meant. <laughs> Peter uh, made a mistake a lot of us do. He began to talk before he was awake good. 
and he made a terrible mistake. Now he starts out good. He saw what was happening, he heard the conversation, and he said, Master, it's good for us to be here. That's right. What a great and high privilege to be in the presence of not only Jesus Christ, but Moses and Elijah, the two greatest of the Old Testament. It's good that we're here. He should have stopped right there. And if he'd put a period right there, we'd have a different view of Peter, but he kept talking. It's a good principle for all of us. Sometimes it's good to stop talking. And so he goes on. He said, uh, let's make three tabernacles. Now a tabernacle is just a sort of temporary shelter. You remember that when the, the Hebrew children were wandering in the desert for 40 years, they didn't stop and build a temple to worship in. They had a tent that they could fold up. It was portable and they called it what? The tabernacle, right? And so tabernacle is just a temporary dwelling place. And so he says, let's build three temporary dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now you just read that, it seems like he said it in good faith. Doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that until you think a little harder, a little, a little more about what he's saying. Remember, what was the conversation about when he woke up? The fact that Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem. It was time to fulfill his mission. And rather than saying, let's go, what does Peter say? Let's stay. Let's stay here, up on the mountain. And this, I think, is his fundamental mistake. He had forgotten his own confession. It was Peter that said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The second mistake that he made is that he equated Elijah and Moses with Jesus. He put them on the same level. Remember we said last week that's what the Muslims do. They have a high view of Jesus. Not quite as high as Muhammad, but, but a high view of Jesus. And so they want him to put him on the same level as a great prophet. And, and here's what Peter's doing. I'm putting Jesus on the same level as Elijah and Moses. Now if Jesus had been anyone but God in the flesh, that would have been a compliment. But because he is God in the flesh, it was an insult. And we know that because immediately after Peter made that mistake, all the gospel writers says he didn't know what he was saying. In fact, Mark says he was so afraid, he was out of his mind. They all make a statement that, that Peter made a mistake here. And what was his mistake? Well, Jesus is not equal with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah, right? One greater than Moses or Elijah is here. Now think about Moses. As great as he was, he was a murderer. Killed a man and hid his body in the desert. Elijah, as great as he was, led a revival in the nation of Israel. Got rid of all those um, false idols and the Baal priest. And immediately went into hiding because he was afraid of Ahab's wife Jezebel. Didn't have great faith all the time in the Lord. These were men. These were sinful men that God chose to use in a great way. And so what does God do to show that Jesus is greater than Moses or Elijah? Look at verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Singular pronoun. 
He did not say, these are my beloved prophets, listen to them. He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You see the difference? Moses and Elijah were servants and worshipers of Jesus. They were not co-equal with Jesus. And I think there's a great principle there for us today. There is only one who deserves our worship. That's the Lord Jesus. Not even the greatest Christian you know should be exalted and put on a pedestal because the greatest person you know, if you know them long enough, will disappoint you. The Lord Jesus never will. The Lord graciously affirmed to those three apostles that what they had confessed days earlier about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, was absolutely true. Remember what I said? The bookends of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is baptized. God the Father says, Behold my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. At the end of his public ministry, this is my Son, my chosen one. These men were genuinely saved, but their faith was weak. Does that remind you of anybody? The person that reminds me of is me. I, I am saved. I am assured of that based on the promises of Scripture. I don't go to bed at night wondering if I'm going to heaven when I die. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. But I do have weak faith. And the Lord is gracious for those of us who have weak faith that sometimes He graciously reveals Himself in such a way that it encourages us to keep going. Charles Swindoll, I've told you before, calls these our, our bear stories. He's talking about when little David over there in the Old Testament went out to fight Goliath. They said, what makes you so sure you can beat him? He said, well, when I was watching my father Jesse's sheep, a bear came up and the Lord delivered me from the hand of the bear. He'll deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. And Swindoll says, we all have those times in our lives that the Lord's power and presence are so real that we could almost reach out and touch him. Do you have those stories? You do if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time at all. And I'll tell you, I do. I have three or four of those moments in my life where the Lord's presence was so real, it was undeniable. But I don't tell those stories very often. In fact, some of them I've never told. Two reasons. <laughs> I'm a crier. <laughs> you know that, right? And so when I try to tell them, I can't. And the other is they're too personal <laughs> because they weren't for everybody. They were for me. And I think we see that with, with Peter and, and James and John. They didn't go out immediately and run back to the other apostles and say, guess what happened to us? They didn't tell anybody. Years later they did. And see, that I think is why the Lord gives us these bear stories. It's, it's because He knows there are going to be other times in our life where we're going to need them. We're going to need that encouragement. We're going to need that reminder that what we say we believe about the Lord is, is not a myth. It's not something that we made up. It's the absolute truth. It is the rock upon which we have, have built our lives. Now, I don't tell those stories often, but I think about them a lot, especially during moments of discouragement and, and, and doubt. 
And I think that's what, what happens with Peter, James, and John. Later on, when first century church was being persecuted, that's when Peter said, hey, we have, I am eyewitness to His majesty. And John says, we have seen His glory, full of grace, grace and truth. Now, friends, let me finish with this. I, I could tell you those stories today, and that wouldn't do you a lot of good, because here's why. Our, our stories and our experiences are pretty subjective. And, and sometimes our experiences come crossways with what the Bible says. We say, well, God did this, but if it's in opposition to what the Bible says, guess what? One of us is wrong, and it's not the Bible. And so be careful about putting your spiritual experiences on the same level with the Bible. So rather than telling you some personal stories, I want to give you a scripture to leave here with. Re Revelation 21. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 10. Now this same Apostle John had an incredible privilege. He was transported supernaturally into the very throne room of heaven. And he was given the task of writing down for all of us how the world is going to end. And all we know about heaven is what John tells us here in Revelation 21. And this is what he said. Revelation, I better turn there myself. Revelation 21, 10. And John says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, there's that word again. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and a high wall, twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. Now hear this. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out in a square. And its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length, width, and height. Here is a picture of heaven. 1,500 miles in every direction. It is a perfect cube. And he measured its walls, saying, uh, according to the human measurement, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, uh, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, crystallite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysophrase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now some people take that to be a metaphor. But I don't think anything with that much detail is a metaphor. When we see a metaphor, it's just a simple analogy in the Scriptures. Here we have great specific details of the size and the building material of the city. But verse 22 is what I want to draw your attention to. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the, and the Lamb are its temple. The temple to Jewish people was the place 
that symbolized the presence of God. It's where they went to meet with God. But in heaven, we don't need a representative symbol because the reality is there. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its, great, its gates will never close, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, dear friends, that the fundamental difference between born-again Christians and the rest of the world is this world is not our home. We are passing through. We are strangers and sojourners heading to our true home, which is this heavenly city. Our eternal citizenship on the, the moment of our justification was transferred eternally out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. And so we don't have to panic or, or worry or be upset when the stock market loses 10%. <laughs> we don't have to, to, to wring our hands when we watch the evening news because we know our Lord is sitting on His throne. He is high and exalted just as He was in Isaiah chapter 6. His glory fills all of the universe. And one day, soon, all of us who know Him are going to be equipped with resurrected bodies like Jesus that can be in the very presence of God without harm. Remember I said we couldn't do it in these bodies? Well, that's why He's going to give us resurrected bodies. Bodies that are fit for eternity. What about you? Is heaven your home? Or have you invested in the here and now? Friend, I don't like to give investment advice, but I'm going to this morning. If you've invested in this life only, you are of all men most to be pitied. Because the Bible says this same Peter who was there that day who saw the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus says one day this world and all that is in it is going to be melted away with fervent heat. There's going to be none of it left. All things are going to be made new, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will get to share in that glory. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus? Have you received Him as who He claimed to be? The Messiah, the Anointed One of God. I pray that you have. You can today. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Turn towards Christ. Welcome Him as your Savior. Bow your knee to His Lordship and declare your allegiance to Him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you are gracious. You know that we are weak and feeble. Sometimes you allow us to get a little glimpse of your glory. And Father, a foretaste of that time where we'll spend eternity in your presence. So Father, help us never to settle for the imitation glory that this world offers fleeting fame, adoration of others, comforts and luxuries. Lord, those things pale in comparison to true glory. And so, Father, help us never to be satisfied with an imitation that uh, we would pursue Christ in holiness 
recognizing that this world is not all there is. In fact, it is an illusion and we are passing through to reality, which is our heavenly home. Lord, I pray if there be even one person here today who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, that today they would bow their knee to receive Jesus as King and Lord. Father, I pray whatever you accomplish in this place today, you get all the fame, the honor, and attention. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.